And welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 75, recorded on October 14th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And I smell a fork of brew, and we'll get to that in a little bit. In fact, there's a ton of news this week to jump into. So let's start with a highlight of the week. It's perhaps Linux's best Android alternative, Ubuntu Touch, and they have a brand new release. Yeah, OTA 5 has been released hot on the heels of OTA 4. And if you look at the release notes, you'd be forgiven for thinking, hang on, isn't this the same deal as OTA 4? The major feature is that it's based on Ubuntu 16.04 rather than 15.04. Yeah, that's how I read it. Yeah, well, I spoke to Dalton from the project about this today, and he told me that with OTA 4, it wasn't kind of an automatic upgrade. You had to manually do that yourself if you were running an older version. Whereas now with OTA 5, it is being offered to people. It is kind of an automatic upgrade. It's not opt-in, if you know what I mean. So it was almost like a soft launch with OTA 4, but now it's for real. They are confident in their 16.04 version, and they're calling it solid. Okay. I mean, that's good to hear. And for those that don't recall or don't follow closely enough, uh, the phone images are an LTS behind. That's standard. Yeah. So they're not technically behind as far as the phone releases go. This is right on target. There's a couple of new features, though, that snuck into OTA 5 that I think are kind of cool. I think probably the one that's the most user-facing is going to be that Morph browser. I guess their old browser was called Browser, <laughs> and uh, they're getting rid of that. And they have a new one that's based on the cute web engine technology, and that is called Morph. And the reason it's called that is because it has support for Qt's automatic screen scaling. So you can come in with a very small display or very large display, and it'll display an optimal size of the for that form factor for the web browser, which also means how the page gets rendered in the web browser. And this guy is based on a more recent version of the Chromium base, too. So it seems like Morph is a pretty solid addition. Yeah, it was available before as uh, browser-ng, I presume next generation. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't quite ready, and that's why they didn't ship it by default. Uh, whereas the old browser was just crusty and broken, and a lot of things didn't render properly. So this was a key issue for them to fix, and that's why it's kind of the headline feature, really. There's a feature in here that only a community project like this would have. Like Apple and Google would never do this. And it's user-submitted backgrounds and audio creations. So you've got wallpapers and also notification tones and ringtones that are going to be included in this OTA image that were created by the community. And I bet you some of those are pretty neat. I'd almost want to flash this on a device if I had one that works still. <laughs> my my Nexus device finally this weekend kicked the bucket and now just boot loops on me, and I don't know what I did wrong. So, like, my, my Play device has died. But if I had one I could try this on, I would definitely go check out those tones. And I don't know. I'm just saying maybe uh, save them for future use. <laughs> I bet I could fix that Nexus for you. You think so? I don't know if it would be worth shipping it to you, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way, but I reckon I could have a go. Yeah, you do have a knack for fixing those boot loops. I guess you've run into it a few times. Yeah. So another release this week was Plasma 5.14, which presumably you have been rocking and enjoying. Ooh, me? Nah. Couldn't be bothered, <laughs> Joe. Not excited. No, I'm kidding. I actually had it installed before the release announcement was out. I'm... I'm very much liking Plasma 5.14. I'll kind of go into one thing that's probably the big headline feature, and that is that Discover, which is Plasma's software manager, uh, among other things, has now added a firmware update feature. 
that uses LVFS, which we talk about quite frequently, and FW update daemon under the hood to update the firmware of your Linux boxes, which was something that could only be done via the GUI under GNOME software before. And so now Discover has shipped this feature. I have used it, and so far it's worked well. And are you using um, Wayland with it then? No, I have not made that switch yet. I don't really uh, plan to until Neon makes that switch or Kubuntu makes that switch. Okay, fair enough. Because they have landed some fixes for Wayland, specifically copy-paste between GTK and non-GTK apps. That would be very attractive to me because... I don't think that if I did make the switch, that I could make the switch completely to Qt applications. I'd need to use mm. a few GTK applications at least. Yeah, I think uh, you asked on user error this week, which if you are out there listening going, why is everybody talking about Plasma? It's worth checking out user error 50, error.show slash 50, because uh, they talk about this, Dan, Popey, and Joe here. And um, I think the key point that was brought up a lot of work over the years has gone into making GTK and Qt applications look fine on the respective desktops. And under Plasma, there are specific settings where you can go in and choose what GTK theme you want apps to use. And there's one that makes it essentially look like Breeze apps. And there's also a Breeze Dark option, which is the one I use. So basically all my apps kind of look the same. It's You really kind of have to be an expert on Qt widgets versus GTK widgets to know which one you're actually looking at. Well, you mentioned the Plasma Discover, the software center type application, and how that's had some improvements. Um, one of the big ones is support for Snap channels. So now you can have the betas and the uh, bleeding edge stuff if you want, as well as the stable, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, especially since this week, they just launched the Plex server as a Snap, and that's in the beta channel right now because it's a beta version of the Plex server. When Stable comes out, it'll be in the Stable channel. So having a software manager that understands the differences between these channels is more important than ever right now for some of us. Yeah, although would you be running a Plex server with a GUI? I suppose maybe if it's an old laptop that you want to do a couple of other things with. No, you know what I actually do it is on, I have a monster workstation that is, well, by my standards, back when we built it, it was like six cores and 64 gigs of RAM and tons of disks in there that I just slice off a little bit of that run in Plex because that thing runs 24-7. And I don't even sit at it 24-7. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it's not just snaps, is it? It's also Flatpak support has been improved now. Right. This is a handy feature that they've added where if you try to install a Flatpak, instead of just getting an error message that tells you to go fish, they will ask you if you would like to install the Flatpak backend that you need to support Flatpaks. A nice addition there. You know, there's a couple other just really quick, nice quality of life improvements. If you do presentations at work or you're hooking up to external displays, they have a display configuration widget that comes up on your screen now that choose really common layouts or go right to advanced display settings. As soon as it detects that new display connected, that's nice. But the other thing that I was really happy to see is something that used to be in Plasma ages ago is back and that is support for SSH VPN tunnels right there in the network manager. So you can just click a button and you have an SSH VPN tunnel. It's pretty gorgeous. Yeah, all in all, this seems to be yet another solid release from the KDE team, doesn't it? Yeah, really consistent, nice improvements. They've been nailing it release after release for a while now. And I think that's contributing to a lot of attention there. I'd say the future for Plasma Desktop looks really good. You mentioned the Wayland support that they're working on. Now we're getting down to refinement things, copying and pasting between 
Qt, and GTK applications. And we're working on refining our support for these universal installer formats that are shipping and becoming more and more common. As major applications are shipped as flat packs or snaps, there is a real need to have good support in the software manager for the desktop environment. And I think 5.14 is another really good release in a long run of good releases. Yeah, it's easy to kind of imagine that everyone installs software like we do with the command line, but I think the reality is that most people don't, do they? They actually do use the GUI, and that's why it's really important for GUI software managers to get this support. I agree, and I have seen it over and over again when I sit somebody down with Linux for the first time, and they go get whatever that app is that isn't in the repo, Spotify or Chrome or whatever it is, and they download a DEB or an RPM, and they double-click it, and the software store or the software manager launches, and it's this massively complicated piece of software. And that is their experience of installing these things right now. So as they streamline this stuff and they make it automatically install flat pack backend type stuff, it makes that first user experience when you download that RPM or a deb or that flat pack file now a lot more straightforward, a lot clearer, and it eventually works and gets your software loaded and installed, which is not necessarily the case right now. Well, the question is, should you be installing flat packs? Certainly not, according to a new website that popped up this week called flatkill.org. little dramatic in its uh, URL and in its stance. Red Hat's flat pack has been getting a lot of attention lately, they write. It's the self-proclaimed new way of distributing desktop applications on Linux. It's secure, they say. And then it goes in to really kind of tear up flat packs, calls the sandbox a lie, says folks aren't getting the proper security updates that they need and they're left vulnerable. It takes a strong stance. It says that Red Hat developers don't care about security. There's some there's some claims in here, Joe. Yeah, and on the surface of it, it seems to be almost justified, really. There's a fair bit of evidence to support these ideas that flat packs are not a great idea. But then when you really kind of step back from it, you realize that Almost all of what is being said on this website is not necessarily a criticism of Flatpak as a technology. It's more how Flatpaks are being implemented at the moment. That, I think, is the crux of the issue right there. Is this, he really doesn't have a case against Flatpaks. The, the issues are he or she pulls out. We tried to do a little digging, and they've taken steps to uh, hide their identity. Uh, they call out things like VS Code or Android Studio and Sublime Text, which are using unpatched versions of Git, version 2.93. Also, uh, they note that uh, Flatpak's PyCharm comes with Git 2.19.0, which are vulnerable to a known exploit out there. So that's the case for saying that Flatpaks are insecure, is that some of the applications, like some of the larger ones, like VS Code, are shipping with known vulnerabilities. In fact, one of the applications actually includes a method that someone could use to gain root access. So there is, in one case, there's an application where you could follow a chain of exploits and get root access via a Flatpak application. That's the crux of the argument here, but that comes down to how developers are or are not packaging their software. And I think what it betrays is a weakness in the universal packaging system. And that is when volunteers package these applications, like, say, VS Code or Steam or Audacity or VLC, they are not in sync with each individual release and necessarily tracking all of the components that are in that flat pack. I think that's why whenever possible, we really need developers packaging their own applications, not volunteers. It needs to be integrated into their build and deployment methodologies. 
But some developers are not interested in distributing their software like this. And so then you have this problem of, well, if the developer doesn't want to distribute it, then we can because it is free software and the license allows you to do so. And that's when you end up with volunteers doing it and then maybe stepping away and not keeping up, as you said, with the various security fixes and everything. These arguments have been made against applications in the Debian repository before. It is a software packaging issue, especially when it's volunteer-based. And I think the answer there is that's Red Hat's problem to solve, frankly. If they're the primary sponsor of this project, then they're the ones that need to do that outreach. I don't think Plex just fell out of the cloud into a snap. And in fact, uh, I was physically there when the Plex folks met the snap team because it was at an event in Seattle. I had a great conversation with this individual. I learned that they are shipping Plex on Linux-based systems. I had no idea because of the embedded market Mm. and all kinds of weird architectural issues and packaging issues. And Snap really solves that problem for them. So uh, it's lucky for us that we get to run it on desktop Linux, but it solves something like, and this is just from our private conversation that, so these are just my guesses and I'm changing the names to protect the innocent, but something like 15 different types of packages that they create. And they have a very, very complicated series of scripts that generate each one of those individual packages. And it took um, a corporate meeting where Canonical sponsored a sprint event and invited local partners to come. And it took a face-to-face where they started talking about the problems at Plex of targeting these 15 different types of packaging formats and how the Windows and Mac guys have to laugh over the fence as I'm sitting there creating a new script to target the next NAS that shipped this week. When the Canonical team could hear that particular need, they were able to begin a conversation saying, well, you know, Snaps can actually solve that problem, and we could add the support for these architecture requirements that you have, and we could just put that upstream. Although it does go to show that these things take time, because that sprint was months ago, wasn't it? Beginning of the year, yeah. Yeah, we've only had this Plex Snap this week. And so it's not trivial for some of these applications. This is what Red Hat's got to start doing, though. They've got to start making these relationships, and the end users are the ones that suffer if the packages don't get updated. Now, there also could be, you know, developer awareness that could be raised, but these core issues are nothing new. They happen on the Mac in DMG files. They've happened in Debian repositories before. They happen on Windows machines all the time. You install something with the install wizard and it blasts a whole bunch of old DLLs on your box. This is a common problem, and if it's not solved at the source, we're generally playing catch-up. Well, you mentioned a fork at the top of the show, and you were talking about Redis and specifically some modules that have been forked. But who has forked them is pretty interesting. You won't be too surprised when I say it's the Debian Linux project leader and the Fedora developer. So this is Chris Lamb and Nathan Scott. And they're concerned that these changes to the Redis modules are going to make it so that they can't distribute Redis In Fedora or Debian, they write, with recent licensing changes to several Redis Labs modules, making them no longer free and open source, GNU slash Linux distributions such as Debian and Fedora are no longer able to ship Redis Labs versions of the affected modules to their users. As a result, we have begun working together to create a set of module repositories forked from the code prior to the license change. We will maintain changes to these modules under their original open source licenses, applying only free and open fixes and updates. Now, it is worth noting that these modules have not become proprietary, completely proprietary. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. What has happened is 
Redis have decided that they don't want people to take their code and make money from it. So they've added what they call the commons clause, which basically just says you can do whatever you want. You can have all the usual freedoms of free and open source software, but you just can't make money from it. Yeah, which if you think about all those Debian or Fedora installs that uh, are up in maybe like a web server instance or even used inside a company as a database server so that way they can work on things and make a profit, it it is not only a non-starter for those work cases, but it's restricting the freedom of the application. And this really seems targeted at companies like AWS, which were trying to build services around some of this software and then charge handsome fees. And I think Redis looked at that and thought, wait a minute, we should be the ones, we should be the ones making that money. That's our software. That's my, that's my intuit of it. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, but that's not how free and open source software works. The license is no longer OSI compliant. And that means that distros like Debian and Fedora just can't distribute it anymore. This could have larger upstream ramifications on Ubuntu uh, cloud servers as well. Well, thanks to these forks, hopefully that is going to solve the problem. Yeah, you're probably right. And I'm interested to see the results of the Debian project leader, Chris Lamb, and a Fedora contributor, Nathan Scott, working together. That seems like maybe that could produce other interesting results down the road. Yeah, that is good to see them working together. And something else that's good to see, I think, is Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network, the biggest news of the week. No doubt about it. I think there's no think about it either. I think this is absolutely good news. Microsoft writes that they know their decision to join the OIN may be viewed as surprising to some. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bit. Yeah. Let's just take a moment and soak that one. And they say it's no secret that there's been friction in the past between Microsoft and the open source community over the issue of patents. For others who have followed our evolution, we hope this announcement will be viewed as the next logical step for a company that is listening to customers and developers and firmly committed to Linux and other open source programs. That is a remarkable statement by Microsoft, and this is undoubtedly a good contribution. I think for context, it would be good to keep track of what this is and isn't. The Open Innovation Network now has about 2,600 members, and Microsoft is the biggest fish in the pond when it comes to patents that they've contributed. It's a huge win for them. In in, in a bit of an irony, uh, OIN was launched in 2005 as a company that was going to protect development around Linux from companies like Microsoft, SCO, and others. So there's, I think, a bit of an irony to this that they're joining a group that may in part have started as a defense to Microsoft. So this decision means that by joining OIN, Microsoft agrees not to use any of its 60,000 patents against other OIN participants for their use or distribution of the, quote, Linux system technologies, which is defined by the OIN as a specific thing. It's a set of libraries, Um, Kubernetes is in there, uh, part of Chromium is in there. So there's several core technologies in there that are in this Linux system definition that is now protected by all members of the Open Innovation Network. And then just kind of lastly here, the other thing to probably understand about this decision is Microsoft's participation in the OIN does not limit Microsoft's ability to assert its patents against non-OIN participants. So that means people outside the Open Innovation Network are not necessarily protected by this. Although it would be bad form and probably not go well in their new club here, it is, by the letter of the law, legal. Even if they're using something that's in this Linux system definition. If they're not in the OIN network, Microsoft could still go after them. So it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stop going after certain Android manufacturers for XFAT patents. 
Well, Android was the first word that came to my mind when I read about this. Microsoft make an awful lot of money from Android. So by doing this, if they really are going to stop making money from Android like this, then they're cutting off a massive revenue source, which seems pretty unlikely to me. And the Free Software Foundation made a statement about Microsoft joining the OIN, and that was the first thing that they want to know. They want Microsoft to make a clear, unambiguous statement that has ceased all patent infringement claims on the use of Linux and Android. And that's why I was sort of slightly questioning whether this is good news or not, because they technically don't have to do that, do they? As you said, I think it would be a bad look for them if they didn't do it. But it just seems almost impossible that they could do that because there's so much revenue coming in from Android. I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, This doesn't really, I think, detract from how good of news this is because an argument could be made that that is Microsoft's legitimate intellectual properties and these Android manufacturers took a shortcut and they used something that they should have checked. Their legal department should have checked for that. Uh, and it's not really Microsoft's fault that they decided to use XFAT so that way they could make it really easy to copy files to a Windows box. So there may be an argument to say they're justified in charging those manufacturers. It is probably one of their biggest PR issues with the open source community. But this is, overall, undoubtedly good news because it means that the technologies that are included in this are now going to be essentially safe. It would be a futile effort to go after some small shop that uses anything in this Linux system definition now. And likely any company that's of any reasonable size would have connections to members in the OIN. And undoubtedly, on top of that, membership of the Open Innovation Network is going to skyrocket now. Now that Microsoft's 60,000 patents are in there, it's worth it, and it's free to join. So there's really no downside for a lot of companies. I imagine that 2600 number is going to get a lot higher. Oh, yeah. But something else that the FSF points out is that Microsoft could completely withdraw from the Open Innovation Network with only 30 days notice, which again seems unlikely and would be a terrible look for them PR-wise, but it is possible. It could happen. I do follow the Free Software Foundation's core point there, but I kind of feel like they're playing this patent revenue thing up as the anti-Microsoft angle here. I think all of the hype around how much money Microsoft makes off of Android came off of an article that came out March 5th, 2014, and the headline was, Microsoft makes 5 to $15 from every Android device sold. And that exploded. And, they, and they, the estimation was that they likely make $2 billion per year from Android. And this is back in 2014. I think the logical error that people are making is to assume that that revenue has increased. There was additional follow-up stories in 2016 and 2017, I haven't seen much about it recently, that actually talked about Microsoft's earning reports being slightly down in some cases because they weren't making as much from patent licensing. In fact, in 2016, revenue from Android patent licensing was down 26% from a year ago. So really, for all we know, the revenue may have already been on the decline as Android manufacturers updated their handsets with software that didn't use the patented technology. Well, that would explain it, wouldn't it? That if they're not making that much revenue and that revenue is declining, then it's not as big of a deal as it would have been several years ago. Yeah, I mean, let's just say for sake of argument, it's $900 million or it's a billion dollars. Is it worth Microsoft's time and effort and energy to spend a billion dollars investing in developers to use Azure? I think it might be. I think since Azure is really the future of the company, Spending some money on patent revenue 
to encourage developers to use the core technologies that power Azure is a win for them. Well, they must have obviously done the maths, and the accountants probably agree with you. We'll have to watch and see if uh, anything is stated, though, about that Android patent revenue, because that's really the sticking point for a lot of people. The Software Freedom Conservancy came out and made the same concern, too. They had essentially a similar point. We may see Microsoft make an official statement. Either way, I think people shouldn't get hung up on that one particular thing. What lawyers figure out in the back rooms of really boring buildings is really of no concern to us because the practical matter is 60,000 really important patents are now available to a network that is specifically set up to protect Linux and some of the core technologies around it from patent trolls. That's massive. Yeah, you're right. Even if it turns out that they are going to continue to make money off Android, it's still ultimately good news. They're scrambling busy over there, but I have reached out to a couple of contacts at Microsoft, and I invited them to come on Linux Unplugged to talk to us more to answer some of this stuff. I don't know if they can because they're traveling and whatnot, but uh, we may have somebody on Linux Unplugged to talk about it. I look forward to that. All right, well, let's end with some Google news. They had their event this week announcing the new phones and some boring stuff, but what (laughs) jumped out at me was the Pixel Slate which is the first Chrome OS tablet. You know, at first I didn't get it because I watched the thing live. And I'm like, um... So they've totally reskinned Chrome OS. It looks like a totally different OS with a... Um, uh, it looks a lot like Plasma, actually, now that, I, now that I'm looking <laughs> at the pictures. Holy crap. Uh, and it's called the Slate, Joe. Not a tablet. Don't, don't get that confused. They say the biggest feature of this really is a full desktop web browser on a tablet. That's, I think, what they've built this thing around. Eighth-gen Intel processor... It can go up to an i7 with 16 gigs of RAM and 256 gigs of storage. It's got a 12.3-inch touchscreen that Google says is faster and more efficient than traditional LCDs. It also includes, which is kind of a neat addition, a fingerprint sensor, which is built into the power button. This is a first for Chromebooks and kind of an interesting way to do it without having like a traditional button down in the front. Oh, and that screen, that 12.3-inch screen is 3,000 by 2,000 resolution, which is an interesting aspect ratio. And the thing weighs 1.6 pounds. And the hands-on reviewers have all said it's really well-balanced. Like You can hold it with one finger in the middle, and it stays there. It's beautifully balanced. This is clearly going after the iPad Pro market because it's that kind of size, isn't it? It's a huge tablet, and don't call it a tablet, whatever. And it's all about productivity. It's not a media consumption device. It's supposed to be almost like a laptop replacement. But... I don't know. Don't Apple have that market sewn up already? Isn't this kind of going after a market that is just not going to go for it? Because to get the powerful one is very expensive here. Yeah, yeah, but so is the iPad Pro. You get the big iPad Pro with the full storage and LTE, and you're paying these prices easy. Mm. I think, you know, funny, I, I first didn't get this device, but now it's actually on my consideration list. Um, and it's up against the iPad Pro. I've I've kind of just, I've soured on running a dozen Electron apps to do all of my work communication. Yeah, I have MailSpring running. I have Slack running. I have uh, all kinds of like esoteric messaging apps that are all available as apps on the iOS app store that I think would just be better running on a tablet than running on my Linux box and just free my Linux box of some of those tasks. And some of the mail clients are fantastic. So I've kind of been thinking, yeah, maybe maybe I get an iPad and do my communication on that instead of the laptop. Didn't love the idea, though. Then this thing comes around. It's in that iPad Pro price range. And if you're in the Google suite, so you, like, you work for a company that's all in on G apps, 
this might be a better device to use. Yeah, and don't forget, of course, that you can run Android apps to some extent, and you can run Linux apps to some extent. So it's kind of an attractive proposition. What would potentially sell me on this? First of all, it'd have to be significantly less expensive, but also if you could run proper GNU slash Linux on it, if you could hack it, and there's no indication yet whether that is going to be possible. What about that new Chrome OS feature just to run Linux apps? Is that good enough? Not for me. Uh, I mean, th- that is attractive, but I'd like to be able to install Zubuntu on it. It's the bottom line and use it. Just... <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> on that screen, Joe, you masochist. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Plasma or something instead, but you know, proper GNU slash Linux rather than Chrome OS. And okay, Chrome OS has now grown to a point where it's not just a web browser like it was before, but it's still quite limited. Even with Android app support, even with Linux app support, it's not a proper Linux system, is it, as we know it? And the specs of this, you know, if you've got an i7 with 16 gigs of RAM, there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't run a Plasma desktop on there yeah. or GNOME or anything sure. and have a proper experience. And I think GNOME would actually be far more suited to it because it's kind of touch-centric and GNOME is really good with touch input, but it does need a fair bit of grunt in terms of resources. I mean, I've got a uh, really old... Windows 8 tablet that I installed Linux on just to see if I could do it. And GNOME works really well in terms of the touch and the keyboard comes up and everything, but that tablet's just not powerful enough to run it, whereas this Pixel Slate, I think, would be well powerful enough. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'd think so. Yeah, the th- there's a couple of red flags for me. The price is a little higher than I'm comfortable with a Chrome device, uh, especially one that is essentially a first-gen. Yeah, this has a new UI on top of it. And when I watch several of the hands-on videos, in a couple of them, the UI is leggy as they're like doing the screen splitting and moving apps around. It actually is a little leggy. And that's a little concerning for a device that could be up to nearly $1,600. The other thing to understand is the keyboard is sold separately for $200. And then if you want to get the fancy pen, that's another $100. So it's, you're way in on cost here. And it's a brand new take on this. It does really seem, though, from what a lot of reviewers have said, that Google has internalized a lot of the lessons of the Pixel phones. And they've brought that to the tablet. And they've made hardware-wise a very great device. So some of that stuff could get cleaned up with software updates, which are pretty smooth on Chrome devices. But the thing I'm surprised you haven't mentioned yet is they dropped the headphone jack. Oh, yeah, of course. Did you catch their rationalization? It hasn't been printed a lot, but the rationalization goes like this. Mobile phones have removed the headphone jack, which has created a robust Bluetooth ecosystem. So that made it easy for them to remove the headphone port from the tablet because users have already bought all these Bluetooth accessories as a result of these mobile phone changes. As someone who uses Bluetooth every day, I can tell you this. Bluetooth is terrible, and removing the headphone jack is the worst thing that's happened to tech for as long as I can remember. Wow! Even Samsung now are looking at removing it, and so it seems that it's just going away. Within a couple of years, we're not going to have it anymore. And I've ranted about this many times on various different shows, but the ability to be able to have my Bluetooth device die battery-wise and then just unplug my headphones, plug them into the phone or the laptop or whatever. It's just invaluable. And Bluetooth, okay, Bluetooth can get better or whatever, but just there's nothing quite like plugging in a headphone jack, is there? 
I do miss it from time to time. I do adapt over time, but I thought it was interesting to see them make this transition on a tablet level because this is doing a little bit more of a desktop role yep. where there's a lot of other reasons to have a headphone jack, including just trying to be polite when you're in a workspace and you, you know, you're, you're listening or watching something. I think it's one to watch. I don't know if it's one to buy yet. But I was surprised at how close they got. Once I put myself in the head of a G Suite user who's perhaps using several of the Google apps for work every day, uh, I could actually see this thing being pretty useful. And it would be handy to have a desktop-grade web browser on a tablet. And I think Google needed to make this because the iPad Pro is eating up this market from one end and the Microsoft Surface line is eating up the other end, the higher end. So Google needed to respond to this. And also, I think one last note, just interesting that this isn't running Android. It's running Chrome OS. And when Google was asked about that, their response was, this is where we're investing now. Yeah. As in, we're done making Android tablets. Yep. <laughs> well, official prediction, this is not going to sell well. And the other side of Christmas, say by Easter, you'll be able to pick these up for half the price that they are now. Yeah, I do wonder if maybe third parties could make a little bit cheaper units. But it depends on the hardware. You put nice components in there and put a good screen on there, the cost is going to go up. It is intriguing, though, to see this massive deployment of what is essentially desktop Linux to that quote-unquote new user market that we always talk about. This is it. This is the front line of end users, and they're running Linux with these machines. And now they've made one that's a business machine. It might not have been the desktop Linux that we all thought we would see in the 90s, but we are watching something pretty significant roll out here on some pretty fancy hardware. Except you say a massive deployment. Well, that's what Google wants, but <laughs> I can't say it, I'm afraid. Maybe not of this particular device, but of Chrome OS in general, I think they've achieved it. Yeah, true, true. Well, you guys know the drill. We'll follow this story and all of the other stories in the Linux and open source world. And you can get this show every single week by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.